In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. I'm Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. And this is Two Shrinks Pod, a podcast all about psychology. For those of you new to the show, I work as a psychologist with medically unwell adults, whilst Amy works with children and adolescents mainly suffering from trauma. And part of the mission of Two Shrinks Pod is to peel back the layers about psychological issues that are frequently misunderstood. To combat negative stereotypes, Amy and I put our far too many years of university education to use by researching and critically evaluating topics to present summaries for you, the listener. Which brings me to the topic of this episode. We are going to be talking about work and some of the many annoying things that make our work days painful. We are going to discuss the impact of open plan offices, hot desking, meeting burden, email signatures and arduous record keeping. Why would you want to listen to this? Well, good question, and this gives rise to the episode title. This episode could have been an email. (laughs) And if you decide to skip this episode, just like the forwarded email from IT about the next active directory migration or someone telling you about a lunchtime webinar, then Amy and I will hold no grudges. But if you do listen on, then you'll get an episode that is one part research, one part gripe list about the things that frustrate both Amy and I, and most likely you, in the workspace. The ultimate aim is for you to be able to email your work colleagues and say, actually, no, the research says you shouldn't do that annoying thing that you're proposing, and then smile smugly as you attach the abstract to the study that we cited using the links that we provided in the show notes. (laughs) There are a few things more satisfying, Amy Donaldson, than winning an argument at work by citing published literature. Agreed. (laughs) So, before we get started, if you do like the show... Don't forget to rate, review us. You can follow us on Twitter. You can email us at twostringspod at gmail.com. And to start our journey on all things work, Amy is going to kick us off by talking about the bane of modern work existence, open plan offices. Yes. This this one I had to talk about. It As soon as we picked this topic, I went, this is what I want to talk about. Why, why, do, why do we live in the era <laughs> where we don't get offices? Like... Money. It's got to be, right? Like the cost of building an office. Yeah. And there was a whole bunch of people who came up with the theories yeah. that it would be better. Yeah. A whole bunch of they, they, foolish people. They, they, were all, they were the ones that were all against the wall when the revolution came. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Those same people. <laughs> That's it. All right. So when I looked into this, I found that there were a plethora of names particularly for hot desking, which always concerns me. There's something about the kind of trying to come up with a new fresh name for something that reeks of Mm. something problematic. Yeah. So I found hot desking. I'm I'm doing that emoticon that's like the flat mouth and then the flat eyes. (laughs) You are. (laughs) That's it. So I found hot desking, hoteling, which, yeah, non-territorial workspaces, And the wordiest one was frictionless spaces where employees are technology-enabled nomadic workers. (laughs) I wish I could take a photo of Hunter's face right now. He's he's really into it. That's it. I think I enjoyed sparkling Shiraz more in the last episode. (laughs) 
So I wanted to find a balanced research-based article about hot desking because most of what I found were theoretical propaganda about how amazing they are. And that just doesn't fit with the experience that I've had or that I've seen other people have. Mm. So I wanted someone who had actually asked people what it was like. So can we define hot desking or are you about to define hot desking? Yeah, I can define it before we I tell yep. you the title. Basically, if you haven't seen hot desking, the idea is that no one has a set desk. It's usually in an open plan office and the idea is that you just come in and take whatever desk space is free. In theory, it's that the workplace doesn't have to have enough desks for employees throughout the week. They only have to have enough for any given day of the week. Mm. So people can essentially share desks with one another. And it's done in varying degrees. So in some places, it'll be that you come in in the morning and that's your desk for the day. In other places, it's every time you stand up, you have to take your computer, everything with you, even if it's to have a lunch break. Mm. And then you find a new desk again after lunch. Yeah, or like in the hospital, it'll be like you log off the computer you're using and then... Exactly. Yeah. So the article I found is called The Demands and Resources Arising from Shared Office Spaces by Morrison and Mackey in Applied Ergonomics 2017. Mm -hmm. They're from New Zealand and the participants that they drew from were all Australian workers, yep. which I quite liked given that we rarely find Australian research yep. to talk about on the pub. Yeah. So what's been your experience with open plan offices or hot desking? Uh, well, the first thing that comes to mind is headphones, mm -hmm. like that I need to have headphones so, like, as a psychologist working in open plan stuff, I will have to spend 20 minutes to 60 minutes typing up a case note, mm -hmm. depending on if it's an assessment or not. And so, that requires, obviously, attention. And, and then just, like, computer problems, like, logging on and off, finding a place. And, usually, and like, they were trying to do, like, well, you know, no one owns a desk. And I was like... <laughs> I'm going to be sitting here for a large portion of my day. If I'm not in therapy, I'm going to be sitting at this one spot. Yeah. And I personally think, depending like in a hospital ward where you come in and come out and you not you don't live there, mm. so to speak, makes sense. But like when you work in an office space, then I, th I think it's ridiculous to think that you don't have a place. Yeah. Because I, there's a whole lot of other stuff around having your own resources there, people knowing where to find you, having a phone where people can find you, and just, yeah, computers being set up and stuff like mm. that. So, Have you had any social tensions around shared office spaces, like either open plan Like who gets or, a good computer. <laughs> yeah, like who gets a good computer, who decides what the temperature is in the office. Oh, no, see, hospitals are all just set. Yeah, yeah, no, I had one that was like that and it would sort of be people would get up to go to the loo and pass the thermostat and it would just what? shift yeah me and a colleague ended up switching desks at one point because she was always freezing and i was always hot and underneath the yeah. heating yeah and so we switched our assigned desks because otherwise it was just this constant battle yeah. arguments about noise yeah is often common one yeah i also had a situation at a workplace where the therapy room changed every session. Yeah. Which, when you're working with adults, I've had that, and it's been annoying but doable in that I've had a like a notebook and a pen mm. and not not carrying too much. But this was working with preschoolers and primary yeah, schoolers. Need resources, yeah. And so carrying a tub of stuff up and down stairs all around the building in between sessions, having to like sometimes having back to back sessions and having to rush between offices. Yeah. Because that one was booked and yeah. chaos. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the, the proponents of this talk about how there's better collaboration, there's easier access to supervision, more flexibility, less physical resources to have to worry about for the company. Mm. But I guess the question is, does it actually work for people? So these researchers well, did a survey of 1,000 Australian workers who had permanent jobs. 40% of them were in open plan offices and another 10% were in a hot desking situation. So the open plan ones, they had their own desk to go to every day that was set, but it was still in an open space with multiple mm-hmm. other people. Uh, they covered 695 occupations, which I found impressive. That is a lot. Yeah, and none of them repeated enough to be considered like a dominant category Mm. they covered everything and they wanted to look at the social aspects of work so the positive stuff around friendships with co-workers supervisor support things like that but then also the negative so distrust of colleagues uncooperative behavior so people who might undermine others or get in the way of them achieving what they need to achieve distractions and negative relationships so nastiness talking down to other people Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff They found that people worked in a range of different settings. And if you imagine kind of a spectrum from the most independent to the most social, the most independent were things like working at home or on the road from your car Mm -hmm. or in your own office. And then with one or two other people in a shared space at a client's office. So like going to their office and being assigned a desk or a office, but you have to interact with them to then find that space inside their office open plan with your own space and then open plan hot desk and they wanted to see whether all of those social factors were different oh god so just just on that like the i'm okay with hot desking as long as i don't have to ask anybody about where to find it like my like i'm a pretty social outgoing person but i do have a level of social anxiety and people who know me particularly in the workplace like i don't i don't want to have to ask somebody no about where something is, I'll just figure it out myself. Especially if it's something basic, like yeah. where's a desk? Yeah, like where do I belong? Like, oh, and you can yeah. just go find a room downstairs. You can just ask the reception. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'd rather <laughs> just crouch in a corner somewhere. That's it. I'll just type the notes <laughs> on my phone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of daunting, the idea of having to find the right person, ask that. Yeah, I don't like yeah. that. No, no, definitely not. The, the headline of this research is that they found essentially the opposite of all the, what all the people who say that hot desking and open plan offices are great for. Yeah. So, you know, that it's more sociable, that you can contact your supervisor, all of those things. They found the opposite of that. Wow. So they found that friendships and supervisory support was decreased as the work became more cohabited. So yep. the more people you were around the less those things happened and the more that all of those negative facets increased as well. So I'll break it down. Please. All right. So like we would all expect that distraction would be significantly worse in open plan offices than anything else. Mm -hmm. And that's what they found. So distraction either from visual stimuli of seeing people walk past or noise. That one didn't surprise me at all. There was significantly more uncooperative behaviours in open plan offices and it didn't matter whether you had your own desk or a hot desk or if you're at a client's office. So what this meant was that people were less likely to help one another, to collaborate, to consider their colleagues as people they could trust. Yep. Those base. Because you're competing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't build up a consistent relationship because it's shifting all of the time. So the same pattern was found for general distrust of other people that you're working with it Mm. was higher for those environments 
People in open plan offices or hot desking also had significantly more negative relationships. So they reported people being insulting, talking down to them, undermining them, criticising their work performance in an unhelpful way, gossiping, trying to make them look bad, putting themselves above everybody else. So like you say, that kind of competitive, you're only there for yourself dynamic. Mm -hmm. Friendships were lower in hot desking and open plan as well, even when it was compared to people who work from home on their own. Which I found interesting because yeah. you would think that that would be the most isolated. Yeah. And but there's something very isolating about going into a workspace, work area, having to use a workspace and not knowing anyone there. Yeah. Right. And not feeling comfortable. Especially if it feels like everybody else knows one another yeah. and it, knows how it and works. And whether they do or they don't, is it's relevant. Yeah. If yeah. it feels it's like perception. that. Yeah. 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 People hot desking also had significantly lower support from their supervisor than yeah. in other environments. And the idea was that just because you might be in physical proximity doesn't mean that you actually receive support. No. Um, if anything, it's probably less. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. They, they're, yeah. There's incidental contact, not quality contact. Yeah. So all of these outcomes were independent of if people worked in a team or independently. So it didn't seem to be the actual fact of whether you were working with someone else or not whether Mm. you felt these social disconnection it was about the physical space that you were in the only thing that was different was that people who worked in teams had better friendships than people who didn't which makes sense you're spending more time actually together i i read another article and i decided not to talk about it on the pod because it was quite sort of wordy and sociological But there was an element of it that I thought is probably a way of thinking about it that ties things up quite nicely. So it was an article by Alison Hurst, who's a sociologist, and she went and sort of camped out in an office that had universal hot desking. So regardless of seniority in this one open plan space, and she wrote down what she observed and what she heard from people talking about the space. And so she described it as that you end up with two groups of people often when there's hot desking there's people who are able to get to work early and they get the prime real estate they get by the window um, near their teammates in areas with less distraction you know the best place in terms of temperature and noise Mm -hmm. and all of that Mm -hmm. they set up camp and they make it their own and they make it their own to a point where even when they're not there, so she noticed that even on times when these people were on leave, no one would use their desk because they're like, oh, that's Sally's desk. Yeah. Um, so they're the settlers. They set up <laughs> camp. <laughs> yep. And they make their own community and neighborhood in the office. And yeah. they essentially recreate an idea of a structured yeah. office. Yeah. And then there are people who have other commitments or they start later. So they might have kids that they have to drop off at school and then they come mm. into the work mm. environment when the settlers are already already set up shop. And they get whatever, whatever is left. They get the busier, the more scattered, the less desirable spots, the places that don't have proper plugs or they have to crawl under the desk to try and set up yep. their laptop, the spots no one wants. And she called them the vagrants, yeah. the people who are just camping, settling in around the settlers, trying to find a space mm, of their own. Mm. And the disparity between those groups adds to the disconnection yeah. because you're not actually getting a universal work experience like this is supposed to create. Instead, it's a gap between like the haves and the have-nots, Yeah, which I quite liked that way of viewing it. Yeah, and it, there's, there's something about 
you know, and, and as we'll talk through this, like, you know, there's a lot of stuff about workplace where it's about reducing unnecessary tasks, mm. right? Efficiency, productivity. Like, I mean, I'm no organizational psychologist, but things that bug me in the workplace are like things that are inefficient mm. because my time is limited and what I want to be doing is the most amount of clinical work. Yeah. Right. Because that's kind of, that's what I love doing. Yeah. Right. And that's, what that's I'm why we're for. in it. I'm not, I'm not there to do stats. Mm-hmm. I'm not there to do answer emails like as a primary function. And, you know, if you have to spend time booking rooms, if you have to spend time finding places, it's just, just wasting time. Mm-hmm. Even the physical thing of having to move from one location yeah. to another takes up time yeah like i mean if you imagine your car had a 10 liter fuel tank you'd have to fill it up all the time it's a waste of time no one would want it right so but they'd be like oh well you know it's just just as efficient you know blah blah blah, yeah whatever right you know you get more mileage or something because it's like it's like but you know so like i yeah yeah (laughs) i'm really griping now but i found it interesting like so the authors had a, a list of things that you could do to try and make it a bit better but what struck me was that what was on their list was essentially trying to recreate what we used to have of private offices. So yep. it was things like partitions or plants or things to shield your vision from yep. other people. Yep. It was noise cancelling headphones. It was having space that were sort of like meeting rooms or rooms that you could book in for quiet time on your own. And reading through it all, I kind of just went, I mean, essentially all we're trying to do is put the walls back in yeah (laughs) um and it it reminded me i I worked in a school for a while and they tried the open plan teaching idea and they you know the government put millions into this new building and this principal said well it's not working and i went to go and have a look and found that in this big open space that was supposed to share six classrooms the teachers had built bookshelves in between each room and created their own classrooms again because they said it's not working having six classrooms in one we've Built our own. Think that, that. Oh my god. Yep. Like herding cats. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I mean, I, I like it's. It is interesting in a hospital ward situation. You'll have twenty beds, twenty, mm. and then there'll be a, a work station, nurses station, or, or yeah. whatever you want to call it. Usually in the middle or something. Yeah, or depending on the layout of the thing, and there'll be a whole lot of computers there, and they are very busy spaces, and so you have to learn how to inhibit. Yep. All the noise and focus directly on your task. Which is a hard thing which to is do. It's a very hard skill. And then, but then also kind of like negotiating, kind of like, so that computer looks free, but I'm not sure I'm allowed to use that. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know who to ask. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And some people can be very territorial. Oh, yeah. And and for good reason and, and sometimes for not good reason, yeah. And I feel like this approach often encourages that territorial feeling because people feel like their space isn't protected or... You know, it kind of, it stirs up this, I don't have a spot. Yeah. I need to create one and guard it with my life well, rather than... you know, I think I think one of the ways you retain people is to make them feel like they have a home yeah. at work and they have a friend. Like, yeah. you know, I think one of the, I don't, I haven't read the piece of research, I can't remember what, where I heard it from, but it was basically like, you know, what predicts retention in a workplace is like, do they have a, a, a friend at work? Mm. Like yeah, a, a work friend. Makes right. total sense. So um, how do you feel about meetings, Amy Donaldson? <laughs> you know how I feel about meetings. Mm, tell the listeners. <laughs> uh, I 
starting my career working in schools where you could have a four-hour meeting where nothing would be decided except that there should be another meeting no. about this. Yes. No. Yep. And it just, yeah, if there's a productive meeting, it feels great. Yeah. It's like we actually decided things, stuff got done, let's go. Yeah. But it happens so rarely yeah. that I just... Yeah, I roll my eyes as I, soon as I see I, one. I, I, I'm quite good at chairing a meeting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's it. It's the people who have been frustrated by it before. So that brings me to this article, Meetings and More Meetings, the Relationship Between Meeting Load and Daily Wellbeing of Employees. Nice. It's by Alexandra Long and Stephen Rogelberg. It's in Group Dynamics Theory, Research and Practice, hmm. 2005. So a bit of an older article. So they, they point out... Look, I am going to say, as I've become more senior in my role, I'm changing my thing of like, well, we need to discuss this thing, but that's because my role Are you scheduling more more meetings now that you're... I actually asked to be part of a meeting (laughs) recently. So things... Are you feeling okay? Things have changed, listeners. Things have changed. Um, Meetings are integral and pervasive part of organisational life. It's a vehicle for many activities, problem-solving, interdepartmental interactions. Mm -hmm. These authors point out that meeting load has increased over time they state quote to the extent that meetings help organizations employees achieve their goals is quite apparent no reference to support that contention (laughs) in the article so you know as as a reviewer of that article i would have i would have suggested they rewrite that anyway they wanted to look at the meeting load of employees and how that affects how they feel at the end of the day for five days okay yep so they hypothesize that too many meetings and too much time in meetings has a negative effect mm-hmm. on someone. So they looked at meeting frequency. So they're predicting that the more frequent you have meetings, your, your daily well-being would be worse because meetings have a disrupting nature mm. to the other tasks you have. And they also thought that the time spent, so the more time spent would also be related to d- daily well-being negatively. They had a sample of 37 adults working in the university who attended work meetings regularly, so at least three per week. So 37 adults doesn't sound that much, but 185 observations, so Mm. 37 by five, right? And these were people who were like in admin roles geared towards enhancing student life, right? And it was individuals rather than teams were held accountable Mm -hmm. for the work. A meeting, they defined a meeting as two or more individuals, any modality, Mm -hmm. right? But a five-minute chat on the phone wasn't a meeting per se. Did it have to be like a scheduled thing or did they not specify? It didn't have to be scheduled. Yeah. Right. You can call a meeting quite quickly. Yeah. And need, you know, you need to have it like, we need to discuss this problem. Yeah. So they, they include those. And you do a questionnaire after each meeting and a daily questionnaire of well-being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking, did they account for the impact on well-being of completing the questionnaires? <laughs> Don't get too meta. <laughs> I can <laughs> help myself. Hey, so the daily well-being was measured by fatigue, subjective mm-hmm. well-being, and feelings of productivity. Okay. Results: meeting frequency was related to greater fatigue mm-hmm. of a 0.42 correlation. Okay. So a, a decent, a decent, yeah, like a moderate correlation in psychology. Um, the theory, psychological theory, was that activities are goal-directed and disruptions drain the resources for the primary task, resulting in fatigue. Mm-hmm. And so they noted that. You know, if a meeting is not associated with primary tasks, then this effect is obvious. But even if a meeting was part of an employee's primary work, 
it still had the same effect. Yeah. Right. As you were still disrupted from whatever you were doing. Mm-hmm. So you might have a regular meeting yeah. at lunchtime about whatever, but that still disrupts you yeah. from your work. Right. Meeting frequency was related to higher, greater subjective workload. So the more meetings you had, the more you felt like your workload was. So 0.3, so not the strongest correlation, mm-hmm. but strong enough. Attending meetings causes people to leave things unfinished. So you have to put in further effort to inhibit attention to what you were just thinking about yep. whilst having to process new information brought up in the meeting, right? It's kind of like like I think about it like with email. Like you kind of look at your email mm. and you're kind of like, okay, well, there's a list of things there that have come in and okay, there's a whole lot of things that I'm not going to attend to now, but I will have to attend to them. And you, there's yeah. effort involved in that. In filtering. Yeah, in filtering. And particularly with a meeting with a lot of people, there's often a filtering of like, is this thing relevant to me? Do I have to do anything with it? Yeah. Okay, nope, that information can go elsewhere. It's sort of a... Yeah. So more meetings in a day means more tasks unfinished, more new information to be processed. It's mm-hmm. pretty sort of simple. They found that feelings of productivity was unrelated to meeting load. Huh. Yeah, and they found that the other high measure of meeting load, so time spent in meetings, was not related to fatigue, subjective well-being, feelings, productivity. Really? So, I think the theory is that it's the disrupting element, right? Rather so once than you're the in, time. So, once you're, in a, once you're in a meeting, you're in a meeting, yeah. right? But it's like if you have the same amount of time in the meetings but more meetings yeah. in the day, that was more disruptive yeah. and, and more fatiguing than so say if you had four one hour meetings versus one four hour meeting the four one hour meetings was worse yeah right. which in a way makes sense because you're kind of redirecting your attention to something different each time you yeah. would assume that those four meetings weren't about the same thing yeah. with the same people yeah 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 and demographic factors didn't seem to impact the strength relationships so like man woman yeah old young you know, whatever. I wonder if any sort of personality factors would come into that. Yeah. I also wonder, like, you know, if you're someone who's leading the meeting, it's mm. very different to being, you know, yeah. uh, like a, I was going to say an orderly. It's probably not the right term. <laughs> I thought minion, so that's minion. right. Yeah, min, minion, let's go, let's go banana. <laughs> but, um, you know, because you have to be engaged, mm. but it's still disrupting. Yeah. And probably if you're leading the meeting, you've called it or have some knowledge of why well, it's happening let's not know <laughs> you don't necessarily know why it's happening well no i know but i like i i can often chair things and like but like i haven't called yeah that's it, true and i'm not and i'm, I'm maybe it's the person who calls it yeah because you would assume they think it's important i mean what's a good me- let's let's just let's just like what's a good meeting to you uh it has a purpose yeah it doesn't involve one person monologuing mm. for a however long it does have an element of discussion where people need to be present i think you know it ties into that to the topic you know the headline of our episode yeah <laughs> about if it's just conveying information and it's not requiring you to say anything back or to interact with that information yeah then just send an email yeah like i think there's a there's an element of ideally you want discussion or questions or input or something i like a clear outcome yeah and i really hate when you raise something in a meeting that's really clearly quite important and someone goes oh yes and also this thing no 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 (laughs) no not that thing let's finish the thing that we just talked about 
So, I mean, it, <laughs> you can see I sound a bit prickly, but but it's like, but, let, let's just be goal focused here, yeah. guys, because I have to be goal focused in therapy. Yeah. This meeting was about this thing. Let's go. Yeah. So, in line with things that potentially waste your time at work, so how much time do you reckon you spend on paperwork each day? So, like computer admin work? Yeah, like any sort of client related documentation. I think 45 minutes to an hour to write an assessment report. Mm hmm. Maybe 20 minutes to half an hour to write a, like a review note. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff I would have to do to like admin for non-clinical stuff that record keeping of supervision, mm-hmm. you know, um, statistics. We, I mean, statistics are important to do in an organization. Yeah. Because you have to show your busyness and without that, you don't, the department doesn't get any money. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot of, there are a whole lot of other things that I've done in various roles where you're, you just feel like you're completing something for the sake of completing it. Yeah. 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 So that's something that I've felt as well of, you know, it's. <laughs> oh, I've heard you. Yep. You've heard me rant about it. Um, it was when you told me about the number of mouse clicks that t- took you to do something. Um, <laughs> that's the level of pettiness I counted. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember standing in your kitchen and listing exactly yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And so there's been previous research that says that the amount of paperwork and the sort of feeling overwhelmed does lead to clinicians feeling ineffectual, burnt out, overwhelmed, yeah. all of those kind of things. So the research that I'm going to talk about is by a bunch of researchers who wanted to know whether there was a cutoff, whether like there was a threshold of at what point it tipped over into being unhelpful and causing burnout for clinicians Mm. whether we could sustain a certain level before we cracked yep yep uh so this is the impact of time spent on the electronic health record after work and of clerical work on burnout among clinical faculty by pecorallo and colleagues in the journal of the american medical informatics association in 2021 it focused mainly on doctors but also other clinical staff at a hospital in new york Mm -hmm. so they spoke about how previous research has shown that doctors using electronic health records have a higher rate of burnout than those using other methods to record the same information so like paper files Mm. you get less burnout than typed electronic health records which is interesting isn't it maybe it's because there's no spell check in the emr (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes, we've tapped in on the hunter's um, Achilles heel. Exactly. And the amount of clicks, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah, those factors add to you might feel like it's essential for you to record when it is essential for you to record what you've done with a client. Yeah. But all of those extra steps. But also, like, when, like, systems like not user friendly, it's inefficient. Yeah. And to me, electronic electronic systems should be, by definition, efficient. Mm -hmm. That's the whole reason we have them. You know, and and they are. Yeah. They're really amazing for a whole lot of stuff, but they, they come with a whole lot of other things that are unintended consequences. Yeah. Absolutely. So they've found that. They've also found an association between the time spent using an electronic record and burnout. Okay. Yeah. But so, is that just workload though? Well, not necessarily. Yeah. Because if it's not user-friendly, you might be spending far more time doing things just for the one patient or yeah. covering the same amount of actual work, Yeah. but with more time. Yeah. So they surveyed doctors at the 
um, health system in New York, and almost all of the specialties used Epic. Have you ever used yes, Epic? Yes, Epic. Yep. yep. And, but for some reason... It's not the worst. It's not the worst. No, <laughs> no I would agree. It's quite good. Yeah. For some reason, anesthesia, radiology, and pathology departments each used a different electronic health record than one another and then Epic. And mm-hmm. no one in the hospital system could explain why this this was the case. Mm. Radiology and pathology also used dictation and transcription software for their notes, yep. whereas everyone else had to write the notes themselves. Yep. Yeah. So what's your hunch about the results? How many minutes of using the electronic health record in a day do you reckon would be the cut? Out of like a... Oh, no, I've got no idea. It's, it's an odd one, isn't it? To kind no, of go, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. So what they found was that burnout was higher if you spent over an hour using the electronic system that is every day low. yep or and this is the bit that i found interesting or if you used electronic record for over 90 minutes outside your usual work hours hmm. now i would expect that it would be the reverse like more time at work yeah so like, like if i had to stay late for the longer i have to stay late after hours using the record i would think but are they doing like they looking at it at home yeah or at staying at the hospital to complete it outside their rostered shift but most doctors do that yeah but it was the 90 minutes if it was after hours 60 minutes yeah, right. during the day so breaking it down a bit there were two measures of burnout one was the mayo well-being index which assessed burnout from work emotional exhaustion fatigue being overwhelmed depression nothing to do with mayonnaise nothing to do with mayonnaise <laughs> Yep, Mayo free. And then the Maslach burnout inventory, which focuses on emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. So shutting off from how you're feeling. So spending more than 90 minutes outside of work time on the electronic record was related to a 90% increased in chance of burnout, Mm -hmm. which is pretty huge. Yeah. I mean, if if you're doing work for 90 minutes outside of your day, then, I mean, is that really EMR related? Well, yeah, you do wonder whether the rest of their day is filled up with clinical work and then it's catching up on yeah. the... Um, spending more than an hour during work time was related to a 40% increase in burnout. Yeah, right. So less if it was during the workday. And people who spent over an hour on the electronic health record during work time had lower work-life balance and work-life satisfaction. So what professionals were these? Uh, Radiology, pathology and... Anesthesia. Anesthesia. Medical. So it was across all departments. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, the thing about med notes is they're pretty brief, right? Yeah. And what they frequently do is they will copy and paste a previous note and then... And then edit it. Like, which is that, you know, Amy Johnson has a large bongo head and... um, (laughs) and, Pick something else, please. And a breathy laugh and, (laughs) and... Let's take off my father with that one. And but so, can we can we pick a different? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then they'll 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 add like whatever new yeah. information there is there. But whereas like a psychologist note is very different because yeah. like I said before, like how much time you would spend absolutely on is is actually that's just expected. Yeah. So yeah. you know, sixty minutes, ninety minutes, you know, it's probably quite accurate. Yeah. The buffer for all of it was whether people thought that management was trying to unload some of the documentation burden or not. Yeah. So rather we- rather than whether this was actually successful. So if they thought that management was giving it a go to try and make it easier for them to document things, that decreased the amount of burnout that they felt. Yeah. It didn't have to be successful, <laughs> which yeah. I thought was interesting, that sort of feeling of goodwill or like management actually looking out for your 
interests. Yeah. And it increased your work satisfaction as well if your management was trying to reduce yeah. the burden. The the departments that didn't have to enter their own data, they were twice as likely to be personally satisfied at work. And so, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. So Lordy, that is funny. So was the department that used a different electronic record. So the researchers queried whether it was particularly to do with Epic. And I think, you know, in terms of how much this sort of thing impacts clinicians, there were only 20% who disagreed with the statement that the electronic re- record adds frustration to my day. Mm. So 80% of clinicians were frustrated during the day by the electronic record, mm. which is pretty high. <laughs> like that's that's a decent Oh there's there's not a day that chunk. goes past where there's there's not there's not things no. where I'm just like so irritated. But despite there was also I mean, a, that could be said normally <laughs> for me anyway, but <laughs> No, but it definitely adds to it. It's like a third of the doctors were burnt out, but almost everybody still thought their work was meaningful, even though they were frustrated and burnt out and mm. there was, you know, a a bunch who were really struggling with the service not making enough of an effort to unload this sort of burden there was still this feeling of like we do stuff that's meaningful this is all of the crap that's on top of it well when i when i did some reading about burnout in Mm -hmm. radiation therapists the bits that caused burnout for radiation therapists are these people who give radiation to cancer patients Mm. it's all the non-clinical stuff yeah those are things that cause the burnout because it's not as meaningful. Yeah, yeah. So, and adds adds pressure and, and limitations to the clinical work. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. That makes me feel better. Yep. Just letting that so, out. So, <laughs> on non-clinical work, email. Ah, <laughs> oh, the bane of Hunter's existence. And mine. So, we're going to look at actually, there was, there was a surprisingly large amount of email recent. We could have done multiple pods on email. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's really quite interesting well i'm not sure it's interesting it's interesting that there's a lot of research on it Mm. presentation wise Mm. how are your work emails different to your personal emails in terms of like the body of it or the signature presentation just the whole thing like just just go my work emails have a preset signature yeah in one it's been designed by the organization and there's like a whole bunch of stuff and in the other it's been designed sort of each of us can modify it yeah but there's a lot more information in it than my personal email doesn't have yep. a signature tend to change the font to what i like where i can <laughs> because and it really it shits me when the signature is in a different font to the body of the email mm. especially if the signature includes like a a sign off like warmly or cheers or whatever yeah. like whatever that sign off is if that's in a different font to the rest of the email i get really shitty yeah yeah, yeah so makes sense. but I, I i pay a reasonable amount of attention to it do you pay do you pay attention to other people's signatures yes <laughs> <laughs> so yeah <laughs> article title how impactful is presentation in email the effect of avatars and signatures <laughs> This is by, it's by Joshua Halpern and colleagues in Association for Computer Machinery, Transactions on Interactive Intelligent Systems. Huh. 2020. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> that is a mouthful. Can you imagine answering the phone for them? Not so I just make up my own acronyms, yeah. I think, after a uh, while. Well, they do so go with ACM yeah. on the thing. Anyway, 
Um, email, they say, possibly the most successful communication medium of recent times, but its use can bring its own issues. So they raise that email at work has a whole lot of informal rules around grammar, about appropriate topics, and about presentation. And this study wanted to look at the impact of author-controlled presentation choices of the emails and how this impacts the reader's perception of the sender. Okay. They focused on email signatures. Mm-hmm. So that's the text at the bottom after the sender is signed off. Yep. Right? And the use of profile avatars, <laughs> which is the picture that appears next to the sender's name in your Does e- yours email have a client. picture next to it? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I was reflecting on this. So... No, I think mm. I've got like a like a question mark or something. Like you know, just like it's like a system generated thing because I have yeah. to put one on. My one workplace, they automatically load your staff ID photo as. Oh wow! Really? That? Yeah. God. The other one is just a question mark. Yeah. Or a outline of a person. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's what. Which I've is got. what my personal is as well. I haven't put it. Yeah. I think the two shrinks pod Gmail one. Is actually our logo. It is. <laughs> That's yeah. it. Because <laughs> I was thinking about this. Like we need to, we need to. Think I do about find it. it interesting. I'll sometimes get emails from clients, and if they've set up that, mm. often they'll do like them and their partner or something, and you would never normally see a client's partner. Yeah, right. But then it comes into your inbox, and it, it gives you this other information that you wouldn't normally have. Well. It- there's some research on the on, yes. on the effect of this. So, uh, <laughs> so the, there's a thing called the halo effect. So basically, initial and non-performance impressions have been shown to color mm-hmm. evaluation of someone's subsequent performance. Right? Yeah. So if you think well of Amy, then Amy's good work will look fantastic. Yeah. And and Amy's bad work will be overlooked mm-hmm. whereas if the reverse is true if you think poorly of s- someone yeah of amy then all your bad work will look worse and any good work you do is mm, good luck or anomaly yeah, yeah right and these biases come from non-work related information yeah aspects so appearance for example yeah right? probably like if you're tardy you mm. know, things like that and there's a whole bunch of research on like attractiveness and particular physical Features and ethnicity and names and stuff. Oh yeah, that's related to that as well. As yeah. well, yeah, yeah, it'd be a whole lot of stuff. And these biases can take a long time to overcome. Mm. Right? Email signatures and profile avatars are email equivalents of non-content features. Mm. Right, and so this study is sort of testing out whether this halo effect occurs based on these. So, as I said, email research. There's apparently a whole world of email research, mostly not relevant to the topic at hand. Mm-hmm. Largely. It's been focused on email overload, so which is the stress caused by users not being able to handle the number of emails that they receive. Mm-hmm. You have to deal with a large number of emails, mentally triaging its status and type and the content. You know, the content of an email can trigger work and further stress. Right? What's your inbox number at the moment? Um, combined. <laughs> uh, combined. So you, you go first. Hang on, let me find. So I have three email accounts <laughs> and what, what's yours um <laughs> it's if i'm not if i'm not including work no 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 across across everything okay so hang on am i including the two strings pod one because yeah, yeah well, I'm, I'm going to include that as well so okay In, into the mic <laughs> Ninety-four thousand. oh what <laughs> 
How is it yours more than mine? I'm 20,765. <laughs> What's yours? How's yours 90,000? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm doing well. That's, that's without two shrinks. 83,000 is just like from your personal email account. So that's just like <laughs> eBay. <Spam. laughs> eBay just updating their terms and references. It got um, a lot worse after I went to America because a lot of places for you to book anything or pay, you'd have to put in, in and then they would add you to all of these mailing lists. No. And so Yeah, so I get stuff from like a coffee shop I bought a latte from however many years ago going guess what we've got a new flavor and then i forget to unsubscribe because i'm like i'll just deal with that later well we did early on we did like that there was a i covered in one of the things we came across about email spam and actually yeah. i think they showed that you know you could try and unsubscribe but it was unsuccessful um <laughs> back on email yeah <laughs> it's like where did we end up here um the, i want to know what flavor it was like is it like a some oh, it was it, it, yeah. It was something for autumn. It was like a pumpkin. Oh, pumpkin spices. Yeah. Um, quote. Although there are many techniques to facilitate manual email organization, studies have shown that these techniques reduce rather than enhance productivity. <laughs> end quote. How dare you? Further, that these manual processes, brackets which provide little value, close brackets, increase the user's workload. So, but uh, I like my folders. Well, no. So that they've said that there's an extensive list of automated processes for email sorting oh, that I have, have been researched, but I'm not going to go into those. Yeah, but are they good? Uh, <laughs> well, I think I think they're better than a manual approach. Okay. But yeah, there's also like a large number of other topics like email attachments. Like this, mm. like there was like email attachments, email attachments, and systems to stop them forgetting emails <laughs> attachments and alerting the user. Email, like and like there's all these things. Some stuff about like email on social networks and and studying the semantics of communication. Hmm. And there's been some research into avatars, not that much. Yeah. What is the classic email signature from a workplace perspective? Like the actual the signature or the sign off, like the in the so box. So the bit up yeah. you've said regards Amy. Yeah. Contact details, company logo of some sort. Yeah. Uh, sometimes there'll be something about like the values of the organisation or something. Yeah. Or something about respecting Aboriginal people or something like that that's got like a, a values yeah. component to it. Yeah, I mean, so like mine's usually like my name, title, yeah. days worked, department, contact details. Contact details. And then whatever the, the organisation has. Research shows that it's about displaying professionalism, company identity. It's usually in company colours as well. Yeah, yeah, that's where you exist, what, what authority, authority level you yeah. have, right? They're like kind of a general introduction, but conceal what's unique mm. about you as a person. Studies have found that in the relationship between, <laughs> this is great, the ranking of universities mm-hmm. and the amount that people list titles and degrees in their email signature. <laughs> <laughs> so what that means is uh. faculty with more publications or people from better schools mm-hmm. used fewer attainment symbols in their signature. <laughs> But then they can prove themselves. <laughs> so, suggesting a link between titles, bragging, and the insecurity of the individual. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, who, said, who said research was boring? Um, <laughs> okay, the study. They did a series of interviews and then followed up by giving questionnaires to 900 people. The interviews asked about signatures and avatars slash pics, right? The interviews had great quotes of people complaining about things they hated. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
including their email address in their signature or like not including the phone number so you'd have to look it up or having the logo pop up which takes time to load yeah right or quote i don't like life messages that is so annoying when i get that beautiful thoughts i think i hate that more than icons end quote I was just thinking of that, like anyone who has a motivational quote or like a some reference to being kind oh. or something like that. I just... No. No. Yeah, the similar statements about avatars. So like, it's also so bad because everyone has one and this guy doesn't. There's always that guy that has to have it differently, end quote. <laughs> or my favorite, my introverted colleagues don't even have profile pics. They just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So then they had the questionnaire study. So mm-hmm. 900 people from the Amazon Mechanical Turk thing, basically yep. lots of people just do questionnaires they were given an email to read that was an image file mm-hmm. right? a png file well an html if you want to be precise sure. they even the font was avenir anyway and what was the resolution i'm just <laughs> they didn't have the resolution i was so disappointed dude <laughs> the one with the vr it's got the resolution it's like it's um, important uh, some of the things that people re- researchers <laughs> You've got to have, you've got to be able to replicate it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> what was I? Um, they were given an email to read that varied the avatar and the signature on a number of components, mm-hmm. and then they were asked to rate the sender on the big five personality dimensions. Okay. So there's extroversion. So quickly, extroversion, which is are you talkative, assertive, agreeableness, which is are you sympathetic and appreciative, conscientious, are you organised and thorough. Neuroticism, are you tense and anxious? Openness, which is, you know, wide interests, imaginative. Mm. Right? So these are the, the five main traits of personality that you can measure people on. Yeah. Lots of research on those. Then they also rated, was the email hard to read, well-formatted, professional, well-written. So mm-hmm. four dimensions. They kept all the centers as male to reduce gender bias. All Western countries, and they're all fake yeah. companies. So just to re- trying to control for that. There was a body of the email, mm-hmm. which they also varied okay. in this complicated way, but they varied it across conditions. It was yeah. all balanced and stuff. It was fascinating to read, but they were just trying to control for like... Like a randomised... If the text yeah. was different. Yeah. Right? And they varied the email signatures on one of seven attributes and the profile avatars on one of four attributes. Okay. So I'm just going to spew a whole lot of information here. The signatures were... You could have a traditional signature, like what mm-hmm. we just talked about before. You can have one with a, a religious quote, okay. a large company logo, a logo plus slogan, social media links, mm-hmm. a pretentious statement about saving the tr- trees. <laughs> quote, do we inherit the earth from our <coughs> ancestors or borrow it from our children? Please consider the environment before printing this email. Yep. And written on a phone. Okay. Was yep. the final one. Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind. But the research says no. otherwise. Avatars, you'd have an unknown picture. So that was bad. A human neutral picture. A cartoon picture. I don't know why you do this, but yeah. Like, no. So bad. Car, non-creepy <laughs> was the title. <laughs> okay. Whimsical, which was either a baby, a cat or Snoopy. Uh, for, this is for work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then they also had, uh, this is the first time I've ever come across this phrase in psychology ever which was they had a sanity check where the participant had to summarize the email content. So basically just like, did the participant actually pay attention? But I don't think I've ever heard that phrase either. But they called it a sanity check, which I thought was interesting. I didn't anyway, think I'd call it that either. Like I mean, I, I, I started studying... Attention check or something? Yeah, attention check. I mean, I, I did the, my first psychology subject at school and that was 1995. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, God, that's awful to say about <laughs> that. Um, and Why are you sharing this with our listeners? That's it. Well, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I had a haircut today and there was a lot more grey hairs in the Don't in the think about than, it. Than, than there was They're recently. gone now. That's it. <laughs> You've asked, removed them. I asked her to cut them all out. Um, so, results. All signatures make the sender look less extroverted and less open. So, if you have a signature. Yeah. Makes you look less extroverted and less open because huh. you're being more formal. Because you're kind of, yeah. it's more controlled. Signature saying email was written on a phone makes you seem less agreeable, less conscientious, less extroverted and less open. <laughs> makes you seem more neurotic and the email itself appears less well written <laughs> and less well formatted even though the content of the email was more controlled. <laughs> Is it kind of like you don't give enough of a shit to delete that when it pops up? Yeah, so, so. take that off your phone, yep. listeners. Signatures that are traditional or have social media links made the reader seem more conscientious and professional. So this is sort of, I can't quite remember the, the context of the, yep. the thing. Religious quote, reduce perceived professionalism. Yep. And uh, requesting to save the trees makes you seem less agreeable <laughs> <laughs> and the content less well formatted. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, uh, <laughs> People are weird. Uh, uh, I don't disagree with it, though. No, I don't. Uh, any avatar makes you seem less agreeable. Yeah. Less extroverted, less open, and the email less well formatted. See, now that's interesting because I, I would assume like the extroverted one's the one that my gut says the opposite. Yep. Intentionally not having an avatar, so like a placeholder, makes yeah. you seem more neurotic. <laughs> Because you can't pick a picture. That's it. <laughs> Baby or cat makes the email seem less professional. Baby or cartoon car makes you seem more neurotic. <laughs> Conscientiousness was higher if you had a whimsical, professional or comic picture. Baby... Baby, car, or cat reduce conscientiousness. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know why they've got these like dimensions here. Anyway, whimsical or a car made you seem more open. I don't know. Anyway, no profile avatar improved how well written an email was perceived. Hmm. But a cartoon one did lower the email's well-written score. So, uh, yeah, I didn't quite... Anyway, so basically altering a signature or an avatar doesn't change the sense of agreeableness, lower perceived neuroticism, or improve the perceived formatting. But you can make changes to improve your conscientiousness score. Mm Mm-hmm. And your openness rating, right? You can make yourself look more professional with signature changes, yep. right? And the email easy to read, cartoon avatar. Hmm. Your, <laughs> I would never think to put a cartoon. Oh, God. Yeah. Extroversion can be reduced by negative impacts to your signature. And then they sort of say, well, you know, that signatures are this intention to subtly show authority and credibility, but mm. it's kind of like easy to spot that you're doing that. And so it makes you seem. More neurotic. Yeah, less extroverted or yeah. something. Avatars, basically photos are better than cartoons. Okay. I always thought that was yeah, obvious. Yeah, obvious. Yeah, but anyway. Halo effect, this form of confirmation bias does occur with email and by varying the opening, which is the avatar and the closing signature of an email, can alter the impression you have without altering the work performance, which is the content of the email. So there you go. do pay attention. Yep. I mean, I, d- I don't like a long... I like a brief signature. Yeah. I don't. I think that there's an element at which there's over the top about organizations putting lots of things yeah. on. Not speaking about any particular organization, but just. But like, that's a tendency. Yeah, yeah, there's a tendency. And I'm not always so sure about that. So, summary 
signatures should be brief, simple as possible, if mm-hmm. present at all, and includes and include social media contact. I mean, I think in hospital you don't do that. No. <laughs> Profile avatars can be serious, lighthearted, but no avatar is ideal unless it results in a placeholder image, which is negative. Right. So basically, have an avatar. Have something. Yeah. And, oh, and finally, signatures that say emails are written on phones or avatars of babies, strong negative impacts. <laughs> Okay, got it. Yeah. yeah I'm going to have to make some changes when I get that's home. It. <laughs> Take that off your phone. Yep. Interesting. Well, so that's work. That's work. It's been good. Yeah. Let's uh, let's have a break. Yep. Sounds good. And we will return with But as we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see. As it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations. Well, we're not cheersing. No. You failed on your... Excuse me. (laughs) Hold on. You told me you weren't drinking and to not bring anything. (laughs) Don't you try and flip this around right now. Don't put facts into the story, Amy Wilson. (laughs) I offered. <laughs> Those who haven't caught our previous episode, there was <laughs> there was a extended section about uh, where we just where you drink. I was going to bring you. You know how I Ricky told Donna? you. Yeah, I was going to bring you Ricardo. Um, maybe next time. <laughs> next time. <laughs> yep. I would also accept vodka creases. <laughs> oh, see, I can't do those, <laughs> no, as no, previously no, discussed on the pod. Watermelon flavour. No. <laughs> This is the break is where Amy and I let our hair hang down a little mm. bit and uh, talk. say thank you for listening. Yes. Look, we've, we've had a bit of a break. There's been some COVID. COVID-related problems that have delayed production. We are, as we always say, keen to get back onto it. Yes, very um, keen. And uh, yeah, we probably would have done this episode at the start of the work year where it would have been more... A month ago. A month ago. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, but we got there. Where can people find more about us? Everything Two Shrinks Pod. Yeah, so talk to me. So Twitter, Yep. Two Shrinks Pod. Uh, Gmail, you can email us and say, hi, tell us if you've got an idea for an episode. Yeah, we had, we had a couple of people email us. Yeah. We are, yeah, we will see if we can get onto that yeah. stuff. Yeah. We add it to the list. Yeah. We give it a go. Uh, that's two shrinks pod at gmail.com and you can find everything about us and about past episodes and stuff like that on our website twoshrinkspod.com mm, we haven't got our merch not up yet yet uh, that's been delayed as well but we are uh, that's soon to be soon to be had yes exactly so if you're looking for something specific have a look there's lists grouped by topic it's yeah. very yeah, well, we've, done, we've done lots of, uh, you know, disorders, personality disorders, but also just lots of other topics and you want to kind of have a look hmm. and you can do that. Yep. Let's go. I think the that's it. Things we came across. So, um, things came across. Uh, I always do like long rambling introductions. This is just where we just find something that has piqued our interest uh, that's unrelated to anything in particular. Mm. 
Just cause. Just cause, or it might be something that we found when we were doing a search for something else. Yep. What have you got? Uh, so I am the COVID affected person mentioned in the break. <laughs> and <laughs> while, while I was sick, I noticed that my appetite and what I wanted to eat changed in a way that was different to any other time I've had a respiratory illness as an adult, mm-hmm. which was odd because normally I don't want anything to eat. And then I know that I'm starting to get better when I have a real craving for a Thai stir fry. Yeah. And that's like, that's the marker for yep. me. Yep. This, <laughs> what's yours? I, well, uh, no, I know when I'm sick, like I crave, frequently crave like high energy foods. Mm-hmm. So I'll get run down sick and I'll, I'll like, I want to have like a flavored milk. Yep. Jam donut and corn chips. Like it's just <laughs> like, it's, these are not things I should be eating. No. Um, I'm trying to tell myself to have chicken pho or something like that. But, but it's not what you want. No. <laughs> no. So I was curious whether there was research. Yeah. I was curious whether there was research on like what people want. Okay. There wasn't. But there was research on what people consider comfort food. Mm-hmm. And so I figured that's kind of close mm. enough because that's essentially what you're talking about. Yeah. Stuff that makes you feel comforted, yeah. nurtured. Yeah. That's why you want the high sugar, yeah. high fat stuff because that's yeah. what makes us feel looked after. Mm. So I found this article called Exploring Comfort Food Preferences Across Age and Gender by Wansink and colleagues in Physiology and Behaviour 2013. They wanted to know what types of food people categorise as comfort food and if it's different by age and gender. So there are two parts to it. The first part was that they... Age and gender. Yeah. Age and gender. Exactly. Those are the two parts. The two parts, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Cognitively, I'm still a little delayed. Listening, listening. I'm listening. You are you are on top of it. Practicing my meeting listening skills. <laughs> Missing the point. <laughs> so the two parts of research. Am I research. taking minutes? What's going on? <laughs> no, you're just focusing and thinking okay. about conscience. That's yep, your two jobs. Sure, sure. Yeah. Part one. 411 people completed a survey where they were asked to name their favorite comfort food and describe how it came to be one. 60% of the responses were snack foods. So stuff like what you've just listed. Chips, chocolate, ice cream. That kind of stuff. 40% were meals or like parts of meals. What do you reckon was the most popular? Hot chips. <laughs> uh, almost a quarter said chips. <laughs> 14% said ice cream. 12% cookies. 11% said candy or chocolate. 11% pizza or pasta. Mm. The very confusing part to me was that 7% said vegetables or salad. Well, potatoes are vegetable. I don't think that's what they meant. I think they missed the brief. Well, well you know, was that, that's probably statistically, it's like the vegetarian, vegan portion of the, of the sample. I guess so. It's disappointing though. The least frequently mentioned at 4% was soup, which I found interesting given that a lot of people go, oh, you should have chicken soup. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I just said before, yeah. like, like pho, which is just, you know, Vietnamese chicken soup. Yeah. So then they did a phone interview where they asked people to rate how comforting they thought all of these foods that the previous group had listed mm-hmm. were. There was a difference between men and women. Women rated ice cream and chocolate or candy as significantly more comforting than men. Yep. And men rated all of the meal-related foods as more comforting than women, except for salad and vegetables, <laughs> where <laughs> women found them more comforting than men. 
But otherwise it was stuff like steak, hamburger, pasta, pizza. I wonder whether that's because like comfort food is generally prepared by somebody else. Yep. And so... It's exactly what they and said. And so men, someone's prepared this for me. Whereas yep. women are like, I just want a food I can open the freaking punnet of ice cream and exactly. stick my spoon into. That's exactly what they said. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what they said, given that often the gender breakdown in the house is that the women yep. are cooking. Yeah. That's the men want to be looked after by someone else. Yeah, the women, the women are just, just like, like um, just give me something that I don't have to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's also a difference by age. So younger people viewed snack food as more comforting. Older people viewed meals mm. as more comforting, which kind of fit when I was thinking about like grandparents or people like that who would want like my grandma would want like a roast or something mm. like that as a comfort food. Mm. So that kind of fit. But yeah, so there you go. That's what people want when they want comfort. Mm. I don't know where pancakes, which is what I craved all through COVID. Really? Fit. Yeah, just pancakes. Like would happily have eaten them for every meal of the day. I wonder if there's, um, I wonder if there's any uh, research on cravings in pregnancy. Because I remember I, I, a mm, patient, she's like, have to be. I was pregnant with my sons and I just wanted orange juice. And then when I was pregnant with my daughter, I just wanted hamburgers. <laughs> like it was so funny. It was, it was really, really incongruous. My, um, um, there's this family story that my grandma, when she was pregnant with one of my aunties, all she wanted was a Boston bun, mm-hmm. which for overseas listeners, they probably don't have it. It's like a, a fruit bun with a, quite a creamy like a creamy icing with, topping with, with coconut, coconut. Yeah. on the top yeah. um, and she would eat an entire Boston bun every day <laughs> during her pregnancy yeah. <laughs> my so, auntie hates them really, which is the really yeah <laughs> it's like yeah, you had your lifetime's worth yeah so I mean so I in the break leave the state amazing which I'd not done for years because of mm-hmm. freaking COVID yep and I went somewhere warm and um, I sat next to a very nice farmer uh, on the plane mm-hmm. uh, from the western district and uh, you know we you know, cattle yep. <laughs> he was showing me how you could buy different types of hay and yeah. it was like on this like online marketplace it was like ebay but for hay did you buy any look i did look at you know buying some high legume quality hay but no mm. i opted not to do that so hipster of you uh, well look you know apparently well no well apparently I, all I learned mm. that the the higher the the protein and energy in the thing, the more milk produced from your cattle. Also, the um, you're talking to the daughter of a dairy farmer. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we just like disclosure central tonight. Yes, also the um, fat content, and so they they used to feed them things like baked beans. Yep. To up the fat content. There they go. I'm bored already. Anyway, yeah. um, the so so we're talking about cows. No, no. So, <laughs> so you know, we, we had a good good chat about stuff, but eventually, and not surprisingly, we got onto wind farms. <laughs> and he was telling me Hunter was, can't get through it, a conversation with a stranger without talking about wind farms. No, that is not true. <laughs> but you know, there, there was a bit of a you know, oh well, you know, you know, people who don't understand about the country and stuff like that, ah, uh, like a that yeah. kind of thing. And and he he was getting onto. He said, oh, you know, well, like, wind farms actually cause all these problems. Mm. I knew this was bullshit, but I <laughs> chose not to address it on this And this flight. is you now addressing it. Uh, so, I found, uh, like, 
the, I found this within about two minutes of a Google yep. search. The pattern of complaints about Australian wind farms does not match the established and distribution of turbines. Support for a psychogenic communicated disease hypothesis. And this is published by Chapman and colleagues mm-hmm. in 2013 in PLOS One. Okay. Right. So basically, uh, look, I'm, I'm going to read the abstract and a little bit of discussion. But sure. With often florid allegations about health problems arising from wind turbine exposure, now widespread nocebo effects, which is the belief that a substance or treatment causes negative negative impacts. But Opposite of doesn't plus actually. Yeah. yeah. So nocebo effects potentially confound any future investigation of turbine health impact. So basically, like, if you want to study the effect of a wind farm, people's beliefs that it's going to cause problems. Yeah. You're not going to be difficult. able to... Yep. accurately assess it. Well, it makes it difficult. So yep. so they did a historical audit of health complaints mm-hmm. and looked at some hypotheses to test with it. So they looked at Australian wind farms operating between 1993 and 2012 mm-hmm. and looked at records of complaints about noise or health from the residents living near 51 Australian wind farms. Okay. And ways in which it was corroborated with public health inquiries and news media records and and a few things like that, right? Mm-hmm. They found that 64% of Australian wind farms have never been subject to noise or health complaints. Mm-hmm. And the, these 33 farms have an estimated 21,000 residents within five kilometres and have operated complaint-free for a cumulative number of 267 years. Nice. <laughs> Western Australia and Tasmania have had no complaints. Huh. Right? And they said that 129 individuals across Australia have appeared to have ever complained mm-hmm. and 73% of these being residents near six wind farms targeted by anti-wind groups. Okay. So um, people who likely would have come across yep. propaganda and stuff about yep. wind farms. 90% yep. of complainants made their first complaint after 2009 when anti-wind farm groups began to add health concerns to the wider opposition. Mm-hmm. In preceding years, health or noise complaints were rare despite large and small turbine wind farms operating. Yeah. So, I mean, digging a little bit deeper, you know, they say, you know, their audit says that, you know, it's basically strongly consistent with the view that wind turbine syndrome Mm -hmm. and the seemingly boundless and sometimes bizarre range of symptoms with it. They talk about like infrastructure and stuff like that that's causing problems. They just think it's psychogenic, right? Okay. Opponents to wind farms say, oh, you know, well, only susceptible individuals would uh, like adversely impacted, right? Yep. But they said, well, look, that's, it's implausible that no susceptible people would live around any wind farms in West Australia or Tassie. Yeah, right? so, you would expect at least yeah, a handful, you know, yeah. And, and in the other place as well. So no, you know, they're just saying like, this is just BS, There's basically. no evidence for it. Yeah. Um, so are you hoping that the gentleman on the plane hears this and... I, look, I didn't <laughs> say to him I did a podcast, so... <laughs> I, Shame. I was already feeling like an inner city lefty. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, it probably wasn't a good idea to bring that into the conversation. Um, yeah, yeah. And fortunately, yeah. we managed to skirt around whether COVID was real or not. Um, so well done. Was, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I did have a cocktail by the pool, so that was fine. Nice, worth it. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Tissuing Spot. We will see you next time. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.